Hey everyone, and um, welcome to the second episode of season two of Working with Humans. My name is Matt Phelan, and I am here with Phil Burgess. Hi, Matt. Hi, Phil. Uh, here you're. Um, you're with. So everyone knows we're not in the same location. Phil, do you want to? Um, do you want to tell us where you are? Yes. Yeah, so today I am in um, in Boston. I'm upstairs in my house. Uh, I'm squirreled away in my bedroom because I've just taken my kids to a parent-teacher conference this morning. So I'm working from home today. Um, so I'm squirreled away upstairs. Brilliant. And um, we're going to get back onto flexible working and working from home in, in a bit. <laughs> and I am in one of the phone booths in our uh, Blackfriars office in London. It is Tuesday, 29th of October, and England have just qualified for the final of the World Cup. Are you a, a, World Cup, a rugby fan at all, Phil? It's not, it's not big over here in Boston. I haven't, I've actually missed all the games so far, uh, but we'll try and, uh, well, we might try and record the final somehow. It's not, it's not on at the best time for us. I think it's like three o'clock in the morning or something. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. Um, so, yeah, for everyone listening, just a reminder that um, I set up this podcast, Working With Humans, because in my role um, as head of global happiness, I get to meet just some amazing human beings and hear their stories. And Phil and I um, had a, a few exchanges on LinkedIn and then a, a phone call. And I just, I, I heard Phil's story and I just really wanted to get him on and, 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 and really drill into some of the stuff that he's done. Um, so that's what the show's about. Um, I was trying to introduce you as a guest, Phil, when I was looking at it. And obviously you've got all the good stuff in your job title, like Chief People and Operations Officer um, at Customer Agency C-Space. Um, but the thing that made me get in touch and want to speak to you is that we sort of really connect up on that your next tagline, which is making business more human. But the most human thing that when we chatted that I found out about you is that you, you started your career, um, correct me if I'm wrong, door to door selling encyclopedias. So I, I was, that's my scene set for you. But I'd love for us today to go all the way from that bit of your life through to what you do now around making and helping businesses be more human. So, Phil, please, please introduce yourself in your words. Sure. Yeah. Um... So, I mean, shall I, shall I just start there or, yeah, why don't yeah, I start Yeah, go there? for it. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I, um, I grew up in, in London. I spent a bit of time in the Middle East as a, as a child with my, with my parents. We moved out there and then they, they came back to the UK um, and I went to secondary school in the UK. I uh, went to Warwick University and, um, yeah, I guess one of my first, one of my first jobs was this, um, this crazy summer job selling um, encyclopedias door to door with a company based out of Nashville called Southwestern. So back in um, 1999, I was a uh, first year sort of freshman at, at Warwick. And uh, I was, it was the last year where you still got a tiny bit of a grant check before they introduced tuition fees. So I think I was there waiting for my 800 pound check. Um, and um this lady came up to me in the queue and gave me a, a a piece of paper and said like was i interested in summer work so i went along to this presentation and and they they said that they um they were looking for people to go out to the states to to take part in this summer sort of entrepreneurship type internship where you where you'd run your own business selling um study guides and kids books and cd-roms um door to door and uh, they said it would be the hardest thing you <laughs> but you could earn enough money to sort of pay towards your tuition fees and it would set you aside from people who did the more traditional internships because everyone at, everyone at Warwick did the, the milk round. So I think so I um, 
I signed up and, and headed out to California that summer and spent a summer in California selling books door to door in a town called Modesto. Um, so I lived with three American, three American students and a guy from, from Warwick. And um, yeah, we used to work 80 hours a week uh, on 100% commission, knocking on doors, um, sitting down with moms and dads and their kids. And it was a crazy experience, but I ended up doing it for, I did it for seven years, um, all the way through college. And then I did it for three years full time as a, as a graduate recruiting students uh, from, from UK universities and then training them during the academic year and then going out and working with them in a field in different states. Uh, so I worked outside Washington, D.C. I spent a summer in Houston, in Texas, a couple of summers outside Chicago in the suburbs um, and then down in Florida in Tampa. So, um, yeah, I guess it was, it was the craziest thing I've ever done, but uh, it, it, was, it was also the most character building and, and I, I kind of think my life would have turned out quite differently if I hadn't done it. And I think, Phil, there's two, uh, two amazing little aspects in there, isn't there? That one, you went to university at a time when people were paid to go to university, which for, for students <laughs> now is probably shocking, isn't it? That that was even, that was even an option available. Um, I know. It's crazy. And what, what did you say the town was? Odessa, did you say? The town was Modesto. Modesto. So it was, yeah, sort of near Sacramento along from Stockton. Great. Well, I get after these podcasts, I get a lot of people get in touch. And I, I, if anyone was in that town and they, and they met you, I would love to, I'd love you to get in touch and tell you the story if you can remember Phil knocking on your door. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and just a little bit about, uh, a little bit about now, um, specifically, like you've got that, you've got that lovely job type of chief people officer, but. I'd love you just to tell people why why you why you think it's important to list in in right up the top of your your description why you write making business more human. So I guess yeah, the company I work for um, we think about ourselves as a customer agency. We're called C Space, and we're we're an agency that sort of helps connect brands with their customers. And and we believe that if brands work together in partnership with their customers, they will develop better products better services they'll get them to market faster they'll be more relevant so we believe that there's there's power in business being more human um, and taking a more human a more human approach to developing product services and then and then actually the way they the way they just exist with their customers um, so that's our that's our company mission and I, I guess in my role a lot of what I do is think about how can we translate that internally and if we're going to talk uh, talk about being human to our clients, how can we make sure we're running a human business internally? So, I, I mean, I think I have an, a, an awesome job because I, I get to focus on employee experience, the company culture, um, and um, yeah, and how, do, how do we create a great experience for our people so that they can deliver great experiences for our clients? So it's, it's a bit about how do we walk the talk internally as much as we do externally. And, it, and it's, does that it, make does, sense? it does, and it's fine, it's fine to say if there is no link, but... Um, when you were doing that door to door and the and, and moving out to America to do that role, is there anything you, like you remember learning about human beings that 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 you think has changed the way that you do your role now? Did you learn anything from knocking on those random doors that you apply today? Um, I mean, that's a that's it's a tough question because I I think there's not a day goes by that I don't draw on something I learned from knocking on doors, wow. whether it's the 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 I don't know, like my first my first summer, I, I made two commitments to myself, uh, like about 30 percent of people that do it end up quitting in their first couple of weeks because 
it's kind of intense. You knock on like 50 to 60 doors a day. You might, I might have like between one and three sales and then you get up the next day and you do it all again. Yep. Um, so it's, but, but I, I made a commitment that no matter what I was, I, my, my parents thought I was crazy for doing it. <laughs> they thought I'd be back on a plane within a week. So I, I made a commitment that I wasn't going to quit. Yep. Um, so I, I guess there's something about the capacity of people's that people's ability to do something if the, if they're really goal driven and, and if they they really have a a real emotional purpose around doing something so i mean that 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 resonates with me a lot still today yeah. as i think about how i show up as a leader how i try and shape the culture how i give people purpose at work yeah. um i think like leading teams out on the field trying to encourage people when they're thinking of quitting, helping people to see the long-term perspective rather than make a short-term emotional decision yep. around like going home when you know, like it's like, don't sacrifice uh, what you want in the moment for what you want the most. Yep. So staying focused on your end goal and the big picture, which I think in business these days, like it's so stressful day to day running, running a business, dealing with clients, the intensity of the world outside, like, but staying focused on like why you're doing this and what's the bigger picture. Yep. Um, do you think that's um, yeah, sorry to cut across you, Phil? Do you think that's no, do you, no, do you think that's harder in a social media world where where every second people are seeing something on Instagram about what something's up to? Do you think it's a harder world now? I think so, and and whether it's the social media pressure or whether it's just the time we all spend on our screens. I I read a book this week and it said something like twenty years ago we were spending seventeen minutes on our phone, and today the average American adult spends four hours on their phone. And I mean, I I I'm. I do it like I roll over in the morning and I, I know all the theory about not checking my phone and it, I'm still checking my phone within like 10 minutes of waking yeah. up and we were talking about it at work the other day and, and as we think about like how do we try and help people drive engagement at work and and it's easy for us like I'm, I'm almost 40 it's easy to for us to say well I know these young people coming into the business these days have they got different expectations but then I look at the world out there and you've got Brexit happening in the UK you've got um all the crazy politics happening here in America. Um, It's thrown at you on social media all the time. You're sort of glued to your phone. So you're always on. I I do think we're operating in a higher pressure world. So, so I guess it means that work is intense, but it can also be a bit of a sanctuary for people and and puts a lot of responsibility on, on, on people running, running businesses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think it's more intense these days. I I read the, I read the other day, um, that 50% of employees now expect their CEO to stand for, stand for something. It, do, it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that they have to agree with them, but they expect to understand what the CEO stands for. Um, yeah. Any views on that? Yeah, I mean, we, we actually did a big study of brands. Uh, we, we do one every year. Um, and, um, and one of the key things we've seen in, in consumers is that consumers that uh consumers think more highly of brands that stand for something i mean we've we've had the debate internally as uh, around um again particularly in the american political climate we've got some people within c-space who are who are really passionate about working uh, uh around gun control yeah. um and, and we're having some debates internally about to what extent we should take a stance on that issue there's many of us who believe strongly in gun control yeah. and um it's a, it's an intense I think increasingly brands need to take an issue, CEOs, people need to take an issue. But then we also need to accept that within organizations, not everyone will necessarily agree with the same issue that you've taken a stand on. So yeah. I see this day to day at, at, at C-Space in America as a brick coming over 
uh, sort of in the middle of Brexit, straight into sort of Trump's America. Yeah. And, and then how do you have conversations about politics when, yeah. whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, um, people can start to read around your religious views and your views around guns and your views about money. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I see people who, who are very friendly at work who won't even discuss politics because, yeah. because it's so divisive. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we're looking at how, how can you start to have these uncomfortable conversations in a safer way with people to get to a better place? Um, so it's, it's tough, though. Yeah, no, and I, but I think it's a, it's a thread around transparency and leadership, isn't it? That you, people may not necessarily agree what the CEO believes in, but they want to. They do want to understand what that what makes that human being tick. If they're going to they're going to be turning up every day working for them. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's true. It's certainly something I struggle with as a leader. As uh, I've, I've had some conversations with my team, even on a more micro level, where we think about like what's our strategy for next year, and and, and I'm I'm trying to build consensus and 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 get everyone involved in the discussion and. And recently, several of them have just said to me, Phil, what do you think? Like, we, we want to know what you believe. Like, yeah. we're with you. But, like, just tell us what you think. Stop trying to build consensus. Yeah. Um, and we might disagree with you, but we want to know what, what you stand for. And, yeah. and then we'll tell you if we disagree. And, yeah. and that's been, it's been useful for me to think about that. Because sometimes I can lean towards trying to include everyone when they're, they're wanting me to take a stand on something. And in terms of, because it's, I mean, you've been, what is it one year you've been in Boston now? Yeah, last summer I moved here, last August. So it's still still fresh for you. Um, any when you start working in Boston, you've worked in London before. Did you notice any cult? Because we're obsessed at the Happiness Index with visualizing culture. Did you? We work a lot in North America and in the UK. Did you? Was there any any immediate impressions that hit you on the differences? It's uh, a good it's a good question. I, I I mean, one of the things I think I was expecting when I moved here was. I had images of, of a slightly brasher, more direct corporate mm. America. Maybe that's sort of influenced by TV programs, but I always, I always assumed that people in America would, would be super direct um, in their interactions. And I guess in, in the UK, we have more of a reputation of, of uh, I don't know, we don't exactly say what we think. And I've actually found that not to be the case. Like I've, I've found that people in the UK are, are, are more direct um, than, than in the yep. States. Um, and in the States, there's, a, there's, there's definitely a, a level of sort of professionalism. And, and I think you have your corporate face and then you have your, your sort of private life. Um, in the UK, it, it felt a little bit more blended to me. I don't know if that's just uh, the experience I've had at, at my yep. company or whether that's a, a broader sort of cultural phenomenon. Um, and then it's felt certainly coming from London to Boston. It, it's been interesting uh, the the levels of diversity and the, the the sense of it being more of a a, a cultural mix in in London uh, compared to Boston, so uh, a slightly wider worldview um, in Europe than I've than I've experienced so far here in yeah. America. And whether that's just the scale of America or how much people have travelled, but that's that's been interesting to to sort of yeah. navigate. Well, I think experience. the I think the numbers I mean the numbers back that up, don't they? London is, is is supposedly the most diverse country in the entire city in the entire world if you look at the data. So that I can imagine that being the case. Yeah, it's, it's something it's certainly something that I I miss uh from from being yeah. in the UK. Um so going from the serious into our speed round. Um okay. If uh, this is a tough one um because you you you've made a choice but let's let's um Let's just fast forward 20, 20 years time, um, and we already, already give us a clue on your already give us a clue on your age earlier. 
But um, if you and it's, I've gone twenty years, so your immediate employer doesn't need to worry about you leaving. But if, <laughs> could, okay. would you go Boston or London? I think in twenty years, I'll okay. be London. Um, would you uh, walk on the beach in the summer or snowed into a pub in the Lake District um, having a beer? It would definitely be beach cool. And uh, I, and I hate to get brand brandy on this, but if you could just have an old school Encyclopedia Britannica or a Microsoft Encarta CD, which one would it be? It would definitely be an cool. Encyclopedia. But I think <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so just moving on. Um, Phil, tell us about tell us about what you're doing at the moment, like what your, your sort of biggest the challenges and hopes and dreams are for your current role as Chief People um, and Operations Officer. Ah, oh, it's a big a big question. Uh, it's it's kind of timely. We just had a session actually the other week with our teams thinking about our, our sort of hopes for twenty twenty and 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 there are a few a few topics that we're we're really exploring at the moment. One is how do we build a stronger cohort of leaders and managers across across C space here in the Americas? So we have we have amazing people um, and a, a big part of the agenda that I'm pushing is like if we can really strengthen our abilities as leaders and managers and help people understand the difference between leadership and can management. You, can, can you, can I, you I feel... um, give us the 101 on that, Phil? Because I don't think everyone listening would understand the difference between leader and manager. Can you give us your, like, your, your differentiator on that? Oh, I feel like that's the question I always ask people <laughs> in interviews. It's much harder when you get asked it. Um, I know for me, if you're a leader, then you have followers. Um, and if you're a manager, then it's it's sort of given to you by authority. But I don't think you become a, a leader by authority. I think that's that's something that yeah. you earn. So um, I, I, I think leadership is probably, in my mind, it's more about inspiration. It's more about uh, being brave enough to have tough conversations and let people know where yeah. they stand. Uh, uh, whereas management, you, uh, it's more about the organization of things, getting stuff done, moving towards objectives. I don't think one is better than the other. I think um, certainly at, at our company, we need strong leaders, but we also need strong managers who um, make things happen yeah. and get stuff done and move things along and keep things on track. Um, but uh, I think it's a useful distinction to, to have uh, and, uh, and a useful conversation to have with people who might see the two as just interchangeable. Yeah. Because I think we're all probably stronger on different days in different areas. Do you have? Um, I just want to touch on and then get back to your your Fred, but touch on age diversity because I've just uh, come back from uh, doing a few presentations in um, Shanghai and Beijing, and I was there with a guy called Femi. Um, he's a thirteen-year-old entrepreneur, and I was just blown wow. away with how much of a leader this guy was. Um, he, he has Tourette's, um, which is a thing that he manages, um, which which mm -hmm. he feels when he's under pressure, but it just it just made me realize that leadership leadership has got absolutely nothing to do with age or or job title and it comes naturally but just to touch on your experience in your career have you ever have you ever found that people are getting blocked off because of their age or or, or how they look or whatever because we've had people on this podcast like robin blake before she just looks young so she gets underestimated sometimes have you have you got any ways of dealing with that, with the age age diversity thing? That's a good question. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that leadership is 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 anyone can be a leader. And, and, and that's, again, that's a paradigm I'm trying to shift and say you can be a leader like one week into the company, 21 straight out of college, or you can be a leader as uh, it, it doesn't, it's not about authority. 
uh, I don't know. I mean, I can speak to personal experience. Like when I was, when I was, uh, I was very baby faced growing up. So even like I, all my friends would turn 18 and I, I could never go clubbing or go to the pub with them because I looked, I looked about 12. And even when I was 24, 25 knocking <laughs> on doors, I'd explain I was a sophomore in college yeah. and, and people wouldn't believe me. And they, they would think I was a, a, a sort of sophomore grade 10 at high school. Um, so, uh, I, I certainly struggled in my early career by being seen as sort of smiley and, and young, uh, looking in meetings and, and I'd get advice like smile less and act more with a bit more gravitas. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think that kind of discrimination happens. I don't, I don't know what ad, ad, advice I, I, I would have, I guess for, for myself, I, I, I was lucky I had a, I had a support network and I, I guess I believed in myself and it, and it, it didn't really make a difference. I think it's probably much harder for other people uh, in, in other, in other, in other groups. Like I, 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 I looked young, but I'm a straight white male. Yeah. So like I, I, I uh, it, it was never really a big, I, I come from a pretty privileged position, I guess. in the grand yeah. scheme of things. Would you, would you put a 13 year old on your board? Oh, that's a. I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if I would. Uh, I don't think I. If if I'm super honest, I I think I would. I wouldn't put a thirteen year old on the board. Would Would I have uh, advisors to us who uh, who could challenge our thinking? Yes. Right. Great advice. Um, and and actually, that that if I'm if I'm really honest, that that's an area we need to focus on, like the diversity of our senior leadership and. And, and how we bring in more outside perspectives um, to to sort of challenge our thinking. So, yeah, um, yeah but but um, it would it would be. I'd, I'd like to say yeah, but yeah, of course I would. So, but uh, no, it's good advice. <laughs> I, I, I dragged you off your core point because you're about to talk about um, building out uh, leadership within the company. So let's go back. Let's go back to that because uh, it was just a, a sub point that a, a lot of people have been in contact about recently. Yeah, so I mean that's that that's that's one thing we're focused on. What else are we focused on at the moment? Um, we've just refreshed and relaunched our company values into into the organisation. We've been doing a lot of work on are we living are we living them? Do people understand them? We co-created them as a business sort of four or five years ago, and um, and came up with a set of values that we thought would really help shift the company. So we we work with a a team of people to do that uh, within the business, and then a few a few months ago we felt that they weren't. Um, they weren't fully understood the way we intended. And as we evolved, we needed to evolve them. So we, we went through a process of helping people understand like their intent, what they do mean and what they don't mean. Uh, so we've just relaunched them back into the business. And, and now our challenge is how do we keep them alive and how do we make sure that the leadership team is modeling them and that we're celebrating and reinforcing them across the business. Uh, so that's, that's, a, great. that's a big focus going into 2020. I think that's, so sort of how do we shape things? I think that's what that, uh, the happiness index is one of our biggest growth areas. People call it moving from 2D values to 3D values, which is actually tracking are the are the senior leadership living the values yeah yeah it, i mean and and it's it's certainly a i think it's definitely a challenge i mean we've got a leadership offsite in a couple of weeks we we go away to new hampshire for a couple of days and we uh part of the part of it is thinking about our planning for 2020 and then part of it is how do we build trust and strengthen relationships as a leadership team and and we usually go to our i was talking to someone yesterday actually about how can we get some input from our 
uh, sort of 300 uh, employees, uh, all of our team members, on what are the behaviors and values that they see us living as a leadership team and what are the positive ones and what are the negative ones and how can we use that as stimulus for discussion to sort of push us to do better um, and make sure that we're not just sort of uh, having those conversations in, in a vacuum without getting people's input. So, yeah, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that I'm sure people, one of our values is tell it like it is and our, our team are usually pretty good at holding us to account on that stuff so i'm hoping that will be good stimulus for that session and did you um did you align that with any work on the vision the vision of the company or is that is that is that more to come on that um yeah i mean it's uh, it, it is aligned to the the mission around being more human how how can we as leaders show up as more human so like how can we ensure that people understand our stories like what motivates us why we show up the way we do um also like how can we um i know we talk about like how can we be more vulnerable um and help model things like asking for help so if we want people on our teams to feel safe enough to ask for help we need to do the same yeah so um i think we're still on a bit of a journey there but like we we do spend a lot of time talking about like well if we're, we're doing this with our clients we need to we need to do that with ourselves ourselves internally too yeah. um so it's it's connected to the vision and and i mean we're on a on a bit of a transformation from a more uh an insight agency to what we call a customer agency and um i think i think helping our our team understand what our vision is and where we're going is is a constant uh challenge um because we don't always i mean we know where we're heading but we we don't exactly know how we're getting there year by year month by month so um things are always changing so a lot of what we're doing is actually trying to help people figure out like how to deal with and ambiguity and be okay with that um by by living our values and being focused on our clients and heading heading in the right direction but not always knowing the answers yeah and just a question when when i record this this podcast we talk about culture a lot and one of the i always find it a little bit sad one of the reasons a lot of people get in touch with the happiness index is not because their staff are happy and they normally get in touch with us when the symptoms are bad so lots of people are leaving the company um this culture is perceived as bad do you um, and 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 the word that comes up a lot is toxic culture. If yeah. you were let's we're not in a let's imagine we're not in the people team. We're not yeah. in the higher ranking of the company. So let's say you're an account manager in a in a in a media company, um, and you're you're feeling the toxic you're feeling the toxic culture. You don't want to just leave because you you like this company. Do you have advice for individuals that are in companies that want to contribute to making it take it out of toxic culture? Or do you think it's impossible to come out of a toxic culture? What's, what's your view on that, Phil? I think that's a really difficult question. I, I mean, I think I, think I, know, I, need, optim- you, I need your help to get asked. Every day. <laughs> I, think the, <laughs> the, I think the optimist in me would be would say, OK, everyone can control to a degree the way they show up and the, work, the impact they have on others. So everyone can influence the culture around them by thinking about the impact of their own behavior so i could imagine if you're an account manager within a team there's a degree to which you can control um the culture so you can you can talk to your team you can you can have conversations with them about what isn't isn't working you can you can agree sort of codes of behavior uh you can uh, start celebrating the good stuff and pointing out the bad stuff I guess all of that relies on um, feeling safe enough to be able to do those things. Yeah. I'm lucky that I've, I feel like I've always worked in companies where I've 
been able to talk to leadership about those things and they've been responsive enough to listen so i've never feared retaliation or anything like that yeah uh, from what i hear when i talk to people in some of the companies like that that is a a fear so I, I i guess it would be easy for me to say of course just speak up speak your mind you can change things but i think if it's a truly toxic culture and you look up at leadership and they're not open to change or open to listening yeah then i i i for me that might be a signal to to reconsider where where i worked i know that's how i would feel no um, I think, no i think it's a, I'm, I'm pleased you said that phil because i think it's a very honest opinion because when we're when we're in our sales process we um one of the questions i ask the hr team or the, or the marketing team is does the ceo believe in this yeah because ultimately you can sign up for you could do a double whammy of working with your company and our company to revolutionize everything but if the ceo doesn't believe in it it's kind of just lip service isn't it so i'm i'm yeah it's 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 kind of sad and interesting to hear you say that yeah i think so and and i think it's also i mean i think it's also looking at leadership and 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 then maybe I would say that because I'm part of the leadership team, but also cutting some slack. So I guess the things that I is there is their willingness to change, is their willingness to listen, is their openness to dialogue, not is there sort of perfection. And mm-hmm. like, do people hold their hands up when they've made a mistake? Are, are people well intended? I, I hope that that's how we show up on a, on a good day. And, yeah. and I know that we still get stuff wrong, but I, I, I guess I would look for those kind of signs that, that, that there's hope to change the culture. Um, and just putting in you into your into your sort of senior team role, one of the other the other the second question I get from 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 people that are leading a business is my and I hate to use it in a, a sporting analogy, but it's it's how it's served to me, so that's how I'm going to serve it to you. Um, <laughs> which is my star player um, is 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 part is 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 toxic for the business. So they may be the best salesperson, the best marketing person, maybe the 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 customer director that is loved by the customers the most, but the rest of the team are really struggling to work around this people. And I, and I get people ask me about that because they say, well, this person's billing the most or they're doing this, but everyone else in the company can't work with this person. And they, and they are negatively impacting the culture. Do you have any view on the, on the sort of superstar um, culture type thing? I don't know if you've had similar things in your encountered people like that in your career at all. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have. And I mean, I would love to say, because I, I mean, I've read all the articles on, on LinkedIn and I feel like I read books about this all the time. I would love to say that I've been strong enough through my career to always say, like, there's no room for, no room for jerks. There's no, what was the expression? Brilliant jerks. Like they're toxic. And through my career, I've, I've always got rid of them um, because of the toxic impact they can have on culture. Uh, I think if I'm more honest with myself, um, I think there's been times when I've tolerated it um, and there's been times when I've acted on it. Uh, where I've acted on it um, and asked someone to leave, it's always been yep. the right decision and had a positive impact on the team. Where I've tolerated it, I think there's probably been two outcomes. One, the inevitable happens that like they end up leaving or we end up having to say goodbye to them or, uh, and we lose other people along the way. And then we regret it and wish yep. we'd acted earlier. And I can think of several examples of, of, of where that's happened. And then other times I think, like, I, 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 I guess I fundamentally believe that people can get better. And this is probably a, 
a strength and a failing of mine that I, I, I like to believe that if you work with people and coach mm. them, they can get better. So I've certainly worked with people who at times have had a toxic impact on culture and at other times have been amazing. Um, and that's often because of what's going on in their private lives and all of that. And I think as a leader, I've often struggled to know what to do there. Um, I, uh, and, and, and I think at times I, I, I haven't been strong enough to say, actually, no, yeah. they need to leave. Um, but I know, <laughs> I, I think that's the right answer. That would be the advice I yep. would give to others. But I, I can't honestly say that I've always acted yep. on my if own you, advice. Um, so, and, and we're getting really, I know we're getting really deep and I'm chucking big questions at you here, Phil. Um, have you encountered um, a sociopath in, the, in, in a business that you've worked in before? Um, Divine sociopath so, for me? Like, I think so I've actually mean. just brought it up on Google just to make sure we're, uh, we get the right one. So sociopath is a term used to describe someone who has antisocial personality disorder. People with ASPD can't understand the others' feelings around them. Um, so you can get... I, I, I define it slightly yeah. different because some sociopaths may be the people that we were just talking about, but it's, it's definitely... I get a lot of people contact me on LinkedIn saying things like they think they're working with a sociopath. What should they do? Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely have, I, I think I've probably like worked for them and uh, with them and managed them. Um, uh, and, and I suppose you might say like just, just extreme lack of empathy of the impact yeah. they have on others. And again, I think, I think to different degrees, sometimes I feel like those people have been like that, but they, 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 they know that things need to change and they have either sought out help. Like sometimes they've gone to, uh, get some kind of therapy and 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 uh, and and almost seen the light and and seen genuine yeah. improvement. And others uh, others haven't made the progress because they haven't wanted to change or haven't um, I don't know had yeah. someone back them. I I do think sometimes people can get I don't know whether it's a an innate trait that they're born with or that they have or whether it's a state that they can get into. I think I, that the, the the optimist in me that that believes that people can change most of the time. Uh, would say some people might exhibit those tendencies, but they're not a sociopath, but because of something going on in their life uh, or the stress that they're under, they start to revert to that type. So again, I'm not a psychologist, but I think like it's it's difficult to define whether that's like a fundamental to who they are or whether it's a state that they're in. And if it's a state that they're in, I, I guess I believe that if you work with them in the right way, they might they might improve. But you probably uh, need to yeah. know when to call no, it. No, it's, no, that's really useful, Phil. And um I'm just going to move on um, to the final bit um, and I'm actually just going to read something out and I'm going to bring you back to London for this, um, which is okay. um, UK companies became subject to a new statutory reporting requirements at the beginning of 2019. But it's only from the 1st of January mm -hmm. 2020 that we'll see the impact of these in company reporting. Amongst the changing is a new requirement for all companies with more than 250 UK, UK employees to report how they've engaged with employees and considered their interests in decision-making. So what is effectively changing, if, if you've got more than 250 employees in the UK, you need to be including a report on employee voice in your board report. Now, I don't want yeah. to get into the legal bit um, with you because I know that's not your bag, but to me, this strikes me as people should be doing this anyway. So do you... Do you believe in having the employee voice um, in the boardroom? And, and if you do, have you got any like flavor and give people examples of, of, of how that can be useful? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, fundamentally, I, I do believe it, and it, I mean, it's it's a shame really that that it, that legislation has to come in to make this a legal requirement. My fear with things like legislation is that it becomes a tick box tick box exercise around quotas or statistics. Uh, I, I I guess it feels like that the employee voice needs to be in the boardroom, uh, but it's less of a like look at these stats once a year or once a month, and and I guess what's interesting is when when the board when the exec teams start to have a conversation around. Um, how how involving employees in the business strategy, in doing better work for clients, having better products for consumers, uh, starts to make a difference. Because then you don't see it as distinct. It's not like you have people and employees over here on the left, and then you have finance and um, production and sort of growth metrics on the right. I mean, one of the things that we've tried to do at C-Space and, and I mean, we're part of Omnicom and they're, they're big believers in the service profit chain. So if you focus on people, uh, they uh, do better work. The, um, the work helps the company grow and then the growth you can reinvest yeah. in people. So, I mean, what we try to do and we don't get this right all the time is, is start to connect things. So the conversation needs to be around um, if we're investing our people, our, yeah. our work gets better and um they're they're all in, interconnected so our, our our dashboards we do have we have people data but then we also have the financial data built into the same the same thing and that's actually been that has been a, a newer development with us because we were conscious that again this is this is our mantra we talk about involving employees involving customers in in creating new things and and we looked at ourselves about a year ago and we were like oh we don't actually have this as a, a metric that we look at monthly. We did a lot of qualitative stuff. We're, we're big believers involving our staff in like shaping new policies. We co-created a new parental leave policy with our people. We did the same with flexible working. We did the same with our values. For us, we, we realized we were kind of light on the, the people yeah. data and metrics. And, and for, the, for the more financial kind of what gets measured gets done, we, need, we did need to bring that in. So that's something that we've now yeah. started doing. No, that's, I feel that's great insight. Um, so we're going to go into summary. I've got three final questions for you. Um, biggest okay. low in your career? Oh, biggest low. I don't even know if that's a double negative, but I'm still asking it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I, feel like I have various lows. Um, and but it's probably my, I go back to my book selling days and um i for my first four years i was uh, a salesperson and i didn't recruit anyone to come out with me and as 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 a team and my first year full-time i was recruiting people uh so it was my first year recruiting selecting people and then managing a team and i recruited sort of eight or nine people um and within a week like seven of them had quit and sort of flown back to england so i think that was that was probably my first big failing as as a leader um, and, and again, I think has, has shaped me and helped me understand how pivotal the role of the leader is in, in the success of a team. Um, and, and again, at the end of that year, I was, I was ready to throw in the towel and, and, and quit doing it. But I'm, I'm glad they persuaded me to come back yeah. for a couple more years and recruit teams and learn from that experience. And then they, they did well. But that, I think that's probably... I think there's a, there's a book in that story somewhere, Phil, that I think the world, I think the world needs yeah. to hear when you get time to write it. Um, highest moment in your career? Um, I think my highest, like I, I am really proud of the work we did when, um, when I took over, I was joint managing director of our London office and we, we, we took on the role 
as as new MDs and and worked for two or three years. We set out a vision around how we wanted to build a more people centric culture, um, and we and we went from pretty low engagement and uh, and high turnover. Three years later, we won um, best place to work and and best agency two years in a row. Um, and it wasn't the awards that the awards were nice. But the the journey of working closely with Felix and the leadership team and the people in that office over three years and seeing the transformation um, was I think that's that has to be one of my highlights. Um, and then and then and then my my career selling books those those early summers, not quitting and just keeping on going. Uh, I, I'd probably squeeze in there. Too. Brilliant, Phil. So I, w- I want you to have the final word. So I'll just sum up by saying you talked about at the beginning about being more human and that's all those things like honesty and openness. And I just, I want to share with the listeners that I, I don't tell the people that I interview the questions before. So I just want to say, Phil, I just, so it's been so brilliant how I've just chucked all these bombs at you and you've just answered them all honestly. So I just appreciate Yeah. Yeah. I just love how honest you've been and, and, and shared when you do or don't know the answer. So thank you so much for that. I think that's testament to your character. Um, and I'm going to leave you with the final, um, the final question in your final words. What's the biggest learning in your career? Our biggest learning. I don't know, I'm kind of glad you, you picked that up. I think, I think, I think, I think there is for, for, for me. And, and again, maybe it's cause I'm in, in a, a privileged leadership position and I'm able to do this now. I, I do think there's something about just being happy with who you are and showing up authentically. Like I, I, that, that's what I try to do. I, I try to show up and, and, and focus on doing, uh, I don't know, making things a little bit better at work. And, and I, I try and focus on like incremental wins. So like I, I, it, it helps me as a leader keep on going when I see progress. And, and I think sometimes we all have big goals and we all want to sort of change the world and do great stuff. But, but sometimes for me, it's about like uh, having a big goal, but doing little things and, and helping yourself feel good along the way. So maybe my biggest learning in a roundabout way is actually it's so easy to beat yourself up about all the stuff you're getting wrong and all of the stuff at your company that isn't working and all of the stuff that you would like to change that you don't get to. But sometimes you do actually have to pause and say, oh, actually, like I got that right. And that, that's working out OK. Um, and, and again, like on a, on a bad day, I'll be I'll be in a bad place and my team will say things are going well. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, like it's it's it's, it's important to be kind to yourself especially when you're in a, in a leadership role. So I'd say that's, that's where I'm sort of getting to now as I reflect on, on, on my 20 years working and 40 years living. Bill, thank you very much for coming on. We've learned a lot from you. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.